When I was a little boy, my mother had painted a picture of Jesus and gave it to me to hang above my bed. Now, it wasn't accurate, of course, because nobody knows what Jesus really looked like. In fact, there's some people who would say, due to the second commandment in the Decalogue, you shouldn't have any image of God, and I understand that. But let's just take innocence for a moment. This picture was given to a child, and I put that above my bed. And every night I would see this picture of a very English-looking Jesus carrying a little lamb while he was walking along a path. And that was the first image of Christ in my head. And, and probably even the first introduction of Jesus Christ that was given to me. As I grew up, I came to understand through the church that Jesus was God's son, that he was God in the flesh, that he was 100% God and 100% man, and I came to know Jesus in a greater way. Well, today, when we open John chapter 5, we encounter Christ in the deepest way. We get the biggest and most accurate picture of who he is, I believe, in all the Gospels. What we are reading together is some of the most significant statements ever made in the history of the world. And it has purpose for your life. It has meaning for your life. My life as a Christian is 100% defined and 100% based upon the claims that Jesus Christ makes here in this passage. I would say this matters. I would say this has meaning. It has matter and meaning for life. If we get this wrong, the picture of Jesus in John chapter 5, then we would get our whole life wrong. If we get this wrong, we would misunderstand who God is. If we get this wrong, literally eternity hangs in the balance. So this is a pretty important passage. It's weighty, it's heavy, it's theologically deep, but it gives us the most accurate picture of who Jesus said he was. And, and truthfully, it gives us the meaning of life. So what I'd like for us to do is I'd like to just uh, go into the scripture here in John chapter 5, 19 through 29, and just look at who Jesus claims to be. And I want to address it from this point of view. Why does it matter? Jesus claims to be God. Why does that matter? And I want to also just uh, kind of illustrate it like this. When I was in seminary, I had a preaching professor who used to say, don't preach what people already know. In other words, let's take this example. Let's say that you're going to fictitiously preach that a light switch, if turned up, will turn a light bulb on, and if turned down, it would turn the light bulb off. Now, if everybody in your congregation already knows that, that flipping the light switch up or down would invariably turn a bulb on or off, then don't preach that because they already know that. In other words, preach why it's important. Go deeper. So what I want to say today about this passage, I believe most of you in the church, most of you born again, who know Christ as Savior, most of you who have sat in a pew for decades and decades, maybe even centuries, you would say, well, of course, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. Nothing new there. Let me flip the channel. Let me go somewhere else. But I want to just come at it from this angle. I know most of you already agree with the statement, Jesus is God. 
Here's what you may not be able to fully articulate. Why does that matter? Why does that matter in your life? Why does it matter in the way you do things? What difference does that make? That's what I want to explore today. So why it matters that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to give you three reasons. Now, you know me. I like points. They're like pegs you hang your hat on. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you three reasons why the claim that Jesus makes that he is the Son of God matters. All right? So number one, why does it matter? Well, it matters in what Jesus is saying here because this is the way we come to know God. Now, notice in chapter 5, starting in verse 19, Jesus makes his first claim about his relationship to God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. Now, what Jesus is saying here, again, is one of the most astonishing claims in all of history. He is saying, I'm God. Make no mistake about this. When I was a youth pastor, starting seminary in my 20s, I had a young man in my youth group, and he questioned everything. He came to me one day and he said, uh, Brother Mark, where in the Bible does it ever say that Jesus claims to be God? Well, that was a really good question. He was struggling because he said, look, I, I know Jesus was a good teacher. I know that Jesus um, walked the earth, all those things. But where in the Bible does it make the claim that Jesus is literally God? Now, could you answer that? Where in the Bible does it claim that Jesus is God? Well, at the time, I was so young and green and, and just starting seminary. I told him, I said, well, I don't know where that is in the Bible, but I do know that it is in the Bible. So if you'll help me, let's research it together and let's see if the Bible really does make the claim that Jesus says he's God. Well, right here in John chapter 5, right in these verses that we're looking at, is the most uh, clear claim in all of Scripture that Jesus indeed is equal completely with God. Notice what he says in verses 19 and 20, showing the equality with God. He says, first of all, I want you to know who I am. This is my identity. So if we've ever doubted the identity of Jesus Christ, he says right here that the Son and the Father are in no way independent of each other. Now, when he says the Son can do nothing of his own accord, he's not saying that he's limited. He's not saying that there's some defect in him where he's a robot or he's, he's passive to this point where he, he has no uh, ability to do anything. What he's saying is, I want to tell you who I am. I'm so intertwined with God the Father that there is no separation. What God does... I do. What God says, I agree with. What God wills, I will as well, and I'm obedient to that will. Who am I? What is my identity? I am one completely with the Father. The Father doesn't do anything independently of me. I don't do anything independently of the Father. We are together. That's an astonishing claim. I mean, just think for a moment in our own uh 
in our own time in history, there, there have been a lot of people who have made claims to be God. And these people have ended up being cult leaders. I mean, one that I think of particularly in Waco, Texas. Uh, I used to live not far from Waco, had been to Waco, and uh, David Koresh had claimed to be the Messiah to these people in Texas who had gathered together at this compound. And of course, that ended in horrible tragedy. The evidence is always in the ending. I think back to the 70s when I was very young. Uh, I think it was late 60s, early 70s. We always heard about Jim Jones. And Jim had taken these people to another country and claimed to be God. And of course, how did that end? Total massacre, except for just a few people who were able to escape his clutches. Anytime somebody makes that claim, it usually ends in horrid, destructive death. Jesus makes that claim here in the Gospels. Now, the evidence of his claim is backed up with his works. It's backed up with what he did, what he came to do. People didn't die because Jesus came to earth and claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus died in our place to be our Savior and our Lord and to, to pave a way for us to meet God. So right here he says, my identity, who I am, I'm one with God. That's a startling claim. Notice what else he says in verse 19 and 20. Not only my identity, my work, what I do, what I do. I'm, I'm not independent of the Father. I do nothing of my own. All my work is in unity and in unison with God the Father who is in heaven. We're doing the same thing. Notice what else. He talks about the fellowship that he has with God the Father. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. There's a beautiful unity in the Trinity. Now, even though here Jesus only talks about the Father and the Son, there's a beautiful unity in the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity loves each other and loved each other from eternity past. And they worked together in eternity past. And they needed nothing. It's a fallacy for us to say that in the beginning God was lonely and he needed us and so he created us because he was bored or he was lonely or he was lacking. No, he created us for his glory, but he needed nothing. And the, the love of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the love of God the Father and God the Son is so complete. They are in complete love and unity. So who he is, what he does, and why he does it is all said right here in verses 19 and 20. There's unity between the two. Now, here's the point of all this theology. What does it matter? Well, if you want to know God, the starting place is right here with Jesus Christ. Why does it matter that Jesus claims to be God? Because if what Jesus say, is saying is true, then you can only know God through Jesus Christ. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know him deeper? Well, how do you get to know him? Well, I'll say this, study Jesus Christ the Son. Now, you have the Old Testament, but the Old Testament, a lot of it was written raising up the Jewish people, preparing them, teaching them, tutoring them for the coming Messiah. A lot of the Old Testament was a shadow of the things to come, leading God's people to the day that Christ would be born and the Messiah would come and redemption would be brought about through the work and ministry of Christ Jesus. If you really want to know God the Father, study the Son. 
Some questions that you could ask as you gather around today are, are, are questions like this. Well, what do I learn about God the Father by looking at God the Son? What's the personality of God the Father? He has a personality. His personality involves love. What do I see in the personality of Jesus that helps me understand the personality of God the Father? What do I understand in the works of Jesus that shows me what's important to God the Father? What do I see in the way that Jesus teaches people in the mercy and grace and patience of God the Father? If I want to know God, then I have to know Jesus. And the fact that Jesus says, I'm one with the Father, we're together, we love each other, well then the basic thing is, if I want to know God, I have to know the Son. So it's important to know the Son because it's the only way you can know God. I'll tell you a second reason it matters, that I can know my purpose. The fact that Jesus says he is God's Son and God in the flesh helps me to know my purpose. Jesus shows us the purpose of life in the next two verses. He says in verse 21, claiming again to be equal with God the Father, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now again, weighty words, but what do they mean and what significance do they have? Well, first of all, Jesus is saying this. He's again equating himself with God because God alone in the Old Testament had the power to raise death to life. So Jesus is again making a startling claim. I have the power to raise death to life. But another thing he's doing is he's also saying, when I raise dead people to life, I have the power to give them life, not only eternally, but life on earth. I have the power to give them meaning and purpose. And in addition to all that, I have the power to judge. I have the power within myself to determine who's right and who's wrong. What he's essentially getting at is that the purpose of life is life eternal and life abundant. Now, life eternal. Jesus will go on to say in this passage at the very end, verse 29, that he has the power of resurrection. And this is good news because every one of us knows that death is imminent for every human being. In fact, recently, we've had loved ones and friends who have faced death. And it's challenging and it's hard and it's heartbreaking. And that is not something that you can put your head in the sand and forget. You can try to do that, but it's always evident. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he comes along and says, I have power over death. I have power over eternity. So in science, I know enough about science to make me dangerous. So, you know, you can't take everything that I say uh, verbatim. You got to take it with a grain of salt. All of our science teachers out there can probably school me a little better. But I do know that there is a second law of thermodynamics. And within that second law of thermodynamics, there is something called entropy. And entropy simply means the breaking down. And if I understand the second law of thermodynamics, even remotely, uh, everything in the universe is in a state of entropy. 
So I remember from a science textbook I read uh, in college, they compared entropy to the pyramids in Egypt. And they said, okay, these pyramids were built and they're slowly eroding. They're, they're slowly going into a state of entropy because dust and sun and wind is eroding these bricks or mortar or whatever puts the pyramids together and they're disintegrating. But it's not only the pyramids, it's everything else. The universe is in a state of constant decreasing. The sun is burning out its fuel and even you and I are in a state of entropy, whether we want to admit it or not. We're slowly decreasing from the day that we're born, while we grow and while we mature, we're also decreasing. We're in a state of entropy. And we don't have to go to science and the second law of thermodynamics to learn that. We know that from not only our experience, but we know that from scripture. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die. We know that we're wasting away. We know the wages of sin is death. And we know that Adam and Eve didn't die instantly in the garden. They died gradually and slowly. Age and the breaking of the body is that entropy that is a cost and a result of sin and is part of death. Now we know that and it's depressing to think about that. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ says, I have an answer to the greatest question humanity has grappled with, dealt with, and experienced, and that is, is there any hope beyond the grave? Is there any life beyond this life? What's the purpose of living? And Jesus says, I am the purpose of living. I give you eternal life. I have the power to raise your entropied physical body from the grave and give you hope. So he has the power of eternal life and he says it here. The father raises the dead and gives life to the son to, to raise the dead as well. But it's not just eternal life, that is great hope. But Jesus also says in this passage that he also has the power for life today, abundant life. Within the Gospel of John chapter 10, he'll talk about abundant life. You know, the purpose of the life that God gives is not just to get you into eternity, but it's also to give you abundant life today. So there is eternal life in the future, but there's also a meaningful life today. Abundant life in the Gospels means, first of all, I think, that your life is going to have purpose. There's a lot of people, they're like Solomon. They look at the world and they say meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. Well, the gospel actually gives you a reason to get up and a reason to live and a reason to do what you're doing because A, there's eternity, B, there's life beyond the grave, C, there's a purpose to all of this chaos and madness in our world. And so the good news of the gospel is that we have not only life eternal, but we have meaningful life today. Even if we're wasting away, God is in this. He's using everything to sanctify us and make us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he is giving us a purpose. Life's hard, but you can have life eternal and you can have life abundant today through Jesus Christ. He makes the claim, since I've, I'm God, I can give you that. That's the second reason why it's important that Jesus and why it matters that Jesus claims to be God. We know our purpose. We know our purpose. So does your life have purpose? 
I mean, as you're sitting there and you're thinking about aging and you're thinking about maybe your career winding down or you're thinking about starting your life or you're thinking about getting married or you're thinking about having children or you're even thinking about just what is this all about? The good news of the gospel is we have purpose. Do you have purpose? Do you have life abundant and life eternal? Thirdly, the last point, why it matters that Jesus claims to be God. I mean, first of all, we've already said it matters so that we can know God. Secondly, it matters so that our life has purpose. But thirdly, it matters because we can know salvation. We can know salvation. Hearing and believing is what Jesus then emphasizes. I mean, if all of this is true, if Jesus is the way to God and Jesus is the way to purpose, how do we get it? How do we receive it? What do we have to do? And this is the third response. It's the way to salvation. So notice what Jesus says um, in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, make no mistake about it. People have said wrongly that um, this is reversed. But, but what this is saying is the hearing and believing are consequences of eternal life. They are not qualifications of eternal life. Does that make sense? Think about it. Hearing and believing what Jesus is saying here, they're not, they're, not, they're not qualifications. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, now, hear and believe and I'll give you eternal life. He's saying a consequence of you having this life in you is that you hear me and you believe me and you know that my word is true. And that's good news because Jesus is saying those of us who have gone from death to life have been awakened. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But, verse 9 and 10, but God who is rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ Jesus. So we know that we've passed from death to life. The way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. That's an astonishing claim. The way to salvation is not through your works. It's not through your effort. It's not through your study. It's not through enlightenment. It's not through seeking. It's through coming to Jesus Christ, who is the life and the source of salvation, the way to God the Father. So, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that he is the way to salvation? All of these reasons are reasons why it matters to the claims that Jesus is making. He is the Son of God, but he's not just the Son of God, he's equal with God. He is part of the Trinity, and God sent his Son to teach us and show us and guide us and ultimately save us. So here's what I want us to do now that we've come to the end of this portion of our gathering together. I want you to get with people around you, and I want you to just discuss these three points together. First of all, why does it matter that Jesus claims to be the Son of God? Well, we know it matters because that's how we know God, that's how we know purpose, that's how we know salvation. Now, what do you know of Jesus? It would be great for you to sit around and say, okay, well, here's what I know about Jesus from the Scripture, and then give examples. Here's what I've learned about Jesus, and then connect that to God the Father, and say, therefore, this is what I know about God 
the Father. So will you take some time to just discuss Jesus? Um, be creative with your questions. We've given you kind of some starters, but take that, discuss, and then maybe end with a hymn. A beautiful, simple hymn is Jesus' name above all names. Blessed Redeemer, glorious Lord. Emmanuel, God is with us. I mean, just, just Google those words and sing that together about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Well, we hope this has been some kind of a ministry to you today. We weren't able to gather together publicly due to the ice storm, but we hope to be together Wednesday night. We look forward to seeing you then. May God bless you and um, may God encourage you from his word.